Welcome to the fourth episode of American Prestige. I'm your host, Daniel Bessner, and I'm here with my good friend, Derek Davidson. Derek, how's it going? Uh, it's all right. We uh, just had our electricity come on again after about 13 hours of Jesus, n- nothing. And uh, so I'm pleased about that. But I'm thinking like I'm watching this Ben and Jerry's thing and what it's done for Israel. I, I think I'd like to have a feud with Dominion <laughs> Energy. Why? What did Dominion Energy do? They just, we lose power every time there's a thunderstorm. So I'm like, and you're you know, in the DC suburbs, a, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm like, you know, pick a fight with a company that seems to be the way, <laughs> way to go these days. So I'm coming for Dominion. I think Ben and Jerry uh, would be on our side. They're warning. men of ice cream and men of principle. They're men of principle. <laughs> that's right. I think they would help us uh, out here. Maybe if we could, you know, get the word to them. I feel like that should go in their graves. <laughs> men of ice cream. O'Reilly used to put people on notice, like Dominion Energy, you're on notice. Dominion Energy, you're on notice. American Prestige has you in in our crosshairs. (laughs) That's right. Get ready. Dominion Energy, that's kind of a a dark name. Jesus Christ, that doesn't make me want to use energy. It kind of makes me afraid. (laughs) Well, Virginia's old, the old Dominion state, right? So it's, uh, I think it's because it's a play on that. Yeah, that's a lot of, there's a lot of grim history behind that, which I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah, (laughs) well. At one point. I remember uh, Duke Energy is also big, big in the area. And Duke was a tobacco man, British American tobacco. Nice. Yeah, I think all nice. of our energy, uh, energy no companies are, are related to like horrible genocides and war crimes and, and just. I always uh, tell destroying. people like the first time I I we after we moved here that I realized I was really living south of the Mason Dixon line. I was walking around, uh, just like the local area, trying to get the lay of the land. My wife is from this area. I'm not, and I came across Plantation Realty Company. Oof. That is great. And I was like, wow, that is an eye opener right there. I wonder if that's still <laughs> around. I mean, I feel like that must have been pre 2014, right? Uh, it was probably it was right around 2014. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know if they've gotten I know they're changing like all these the names, highways, yeah. like some of the roads and stuff. But I don't know about uh, I don't know about the private companies. If yet. the podcast doesn't work out, we should do a marketing company. We should just rebrand all the awful and racist yeah, and like, names. <laughs> you know, just go around and offer our services. We could call it American Prestige. It's a good name. Works that's for right. everything. Yeah, that's right. So, Derek, what, what's going on in the world today? I, I hear f- from my sources, you, that there are things <laughs> going on in Iran that we need to that we need to address. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, to to pull back the curtain a little bit, um, the interview that we have for you all this week is uh, was pre-recorded, uh, and we talked a little bit about Iran, but there have been some developments, uh, specifically, Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei delivered his farewell address on tuesday the uh, official goodbye address not not for him it's the farewell address for hassan rohani and his right. administration right uh, how many stays they go uh, but it, it is basically a farewell address uh and he was very uh aggrieved about the course of nuclear talks he sort of uh, lambasted rohani a little bit for uh, getting suckered in by the americans uh he's clearly quite frustrated with uh, what appears to be the Biden administration's insistence that 
uh, Iran commit to follow on talks on a bigger, longer, stronger, I don't know what Biden's exact verbiage right. is, I think longer and stronger nuclear deal that would cover more ground and you know, extend the deadlines and the sunset clauses. Uh, the Iranians have no interest in doing that. They have no faith that the United States would abide right, by of course. an agreement Why like that they? because they've already lived, they've already seen this movie. Uh, the Biden administration pointedly has said it can't give Iran any assurances that a future U.S. administration won't yank itself out of the yep. deal again. And it's, I mean, that's true. Yep. And to their credit, they're not promising something that they can't uh, fulfill. But, you know, the Iranians, for obvious reasons, don't want to get suckered in again. Um, and so, you know, I, I think just to as an addendum, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but just as an addendum to what people will hear us talk about uh, a little later in the show, uh, it looks like, you know, Khamenei is using the occasion of the presidential transition to a more conservative, less right. diplomatically minded president to strengthen a demand that the Biden administration kind of drop all this talk about a follow on deal, because it really could play out if if Iran were to agree to something like that and then refuse to come to an agreement on a, a, a bigger, better, whatever deal, uh, it could, you know, depending on how that was worded, the Biden administration could turn around and say, aha, see, you you violated the nuclear deal. Right. So we're going to restore all the sanctions again. And it's just not a, right. and a this road is, the Iranians want to go down. And, and I think this is going to be, you're going to start seeing more and more things like this, because I do think that the bipartisan, bipartisan consensus that has really defined U.S. foreign policy uh, since World War II is coming apart in certain specific areas. And so I think you're going to see um, other geopolitical powers, other nations be a bit more skeptical about what the United States is going to do. So you have sort of the bipartisan consensus coming apart and also the uh, rise in domestic partisanship, at least when it relates to foreign policy post-Iraq, is I think going to uh, prevent a lot of things that would have um, in, in, in another timeline, in, in other parts of U.S. history, would have um, gone forward. And I think this is sort of a harbinger of something like that, that something that's going to happen. Yeah, I think I mean, I think the Trump, the Trump administration was illustrative or illuminating for a lot of the rest of the world in that it showed that the the thing that was keeping successive presidential administrations from breaking their past, you know, their predecessors agreements was not like in the rules or yeah, anything. The there was no yeah. regulation. It was all norms. It was all just sort of, this is the way we do things. It's the tradition. And all it takes is one president to break with that tradition. And, you know, you hear Republicans now talk about, well, if you want a nuclear deal that'll last, you have to make it a treaty. So the Senate will vote on it. Treaties can be broken just as easily. I mean, all right. treaties have wide give wide latitude to a president to suspend or pull out of or them even just for, circumvent them you know, do whatever they want secretly them, you know right. with the cia for, or whatever for national know. security reasons and they don't you don't really have to specify what those are you just say it's national security and right. move on so that's yeah it's it's there's a lot of eye-opening, I think, about uh, the reliability of the United States in, in these yeah. scenarios. And particularly as the U.S. just decreases in relative power, there's going to be less and less consequences, even though I do think it is still the global empire. And speaking of decrease in relative power, uh, that's quite a transition there. Wendy Sherman's <laughs> nice. visit to China. Yeah. So, Derek, what's going on with that? Yeah, so Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman headed to China. She was going to have uh, or she did have talks in uh, Chanjin. Uh, with uh, the Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi and, and a few other Chinese officials. Um, I, there's not a lot to say here. They didn't really, uh, it was sort of a repeat of that initial 
diplomatic exchange in Alaska a few months ago with Blinken and, and Jake Sullivan. So what where, happened then? Just uh, they just like yelled yelled at each other. Basically, right. I mean, the Chinese delegation, the U.S. delegation, like uh, lambasted each other for a good long time. Even like reporters, as the reporters were trying to leave the room, they were being told <laughs> to stay so that we can get our you know talking points out. Um, that's I mean, that seems move. to have been yeah, exactly. And that seems to have been like the way that this meeting progressed as well there was a lot of you know angry denunciations from from the chinese side in particular uh part of sherman's mission it seems like was to sort of demonstrate that the united states could express a near constant stream of hostility toward China, but right. still collaborate with the Chinese government on big things like climate change. Right. And I don't know if she instilled any confidence. This is and this is possible. the whole Biden administration thing. This is what he's constantly saying in all of his speeches: is that we're going to challenge China. You know, there's no way that China is going to be able to ever exert hegemony in East Asia. And just to put my cards on the table, I think that's just an, an impossibility. I just don't think the United States is going to be able to continue to assert hegemony in East. Asia like it's done since World War II uh, for a variety of reasons, the most important of which is that there are two enormous great powers there, India and China, that are going to be fighting it out. And the United States is just not going to be willing to put in the resources, to put in the manpower, to put in the material that is going to have to, that is going to enable it to guarantee hegemony there. So you have this strange situation where at, at this particular moment in the early 2020s, you have the Biden administration trying to essentially pursue a dual track strategy of both um, basically hostility and cooperation, which I don't think is going to be effective, as the structure of the entire region is going uh, undergoing fundamental changes that I think make it impossible, genuinely impossible to imagine in, let's say, 2060, that the United States is going to be the regional hegemon. So I think what's going to happen is you're going to see a lot of bluster, particularly in the Biden administration. Very little is going to get done. And, you know, the things that we need to be collaborating on, for example, most importantly, climate change, but also pandemic, also things like inequality are going to get worse and worse. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a question of priorities. And to me, uh, you know, is your priority hegemony in East Asia or is it climate change? To right. me, climate change should take precedence. And if that means, Obviously. Uh, you know, you have to collaborate or work with it. It does. I mean, it obviously does mean that you have to work with China on some level. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to be besties, I guess. But, uh, you know, to... It feels like the priority is reversed in Washington, and and the goal Very short first sided. and foremost is to challenge and restrain and and sort of treat China as the new uh, great enemy, and and then and only after that to say you know we're going to work together and these other things. And I just don't know if you can approach the relationship that way. I, I think certainly the response from the Chinese officials both. You know, in the the meeting with Blinken and Sullivan earlier this year, and in in their encounter with Sullivan this week, suggests that maybe you can't that that you're you're building up a, a enough resentment that you can't put these so called guardrails uh, around the bad blood that's building up and and say let's you know keep that compartmentalized and still do these other things that we think are important. Exactly. And I, I really do think that in this particular case, not not in all cases, but in this particular case, fault really does lie with the United States. I think ideologically, uh, the American foreign policy establishment has functioned in a particular way for so long, envisioning these great enemies from the Soviet Union to, you know, 
uh, genocides and human rights uh, violations around the world to, uh, you know, quote unquote, Islamic extremism and jihadism to now China, that it's very difficult for them to operate without the existence of an enemy like that. And then you add the domestic interests, you know, the military industrial complex, of course, but also the the panoply of, of think tanks and research centers and, you know, acad- academics or pseudo academics and analysts who, who make their living essentially justifying and managing the American empire are all encouraging U.S. policymakers to act in this way, which I think is going to be counterproductive, not only to, you know, U.S.-China relations, which it obviously is, but to world history in, in an era that really requires significant transformations and how the United States understands its world role. So uh, we'll, we'll keep a we'll keep an eye on U.S.-China relations here on American Prestige. That's the American Prestige Guarantee. And speaking of declining hegemony, uh, Derek, what's going on in uh, our old friend Iraq? Uh, yeah, so uh, we'll be talking about that here in, in our pre-recorded interview as well. But um, the anticipated um, announcement of a U.S. quote-unquote withdrawal happened on Monday. Uh, Iraqi Prime Minister Mustafa Al-Khadami, uh, Al-Khadami was in Washington meeting with Joe Biden. This had been you know, on the cards for a few days now that they were going to make this announcement about the withdrawal of U.S. combat troops. Uh, it seems likely that most of this kind of quote-unquote withdrawal is going to happen via basically accounting mechanisms that we're going to uh, reclassify a lot of combat troops as training and support staff. Right. The um, old Vietnam playbook, think, right? The old yeah, sending advisors. I mean, the U.S. Well, loves to send it's advisors. Even it's even worse than that. that old. Yeah. It's it's sort of this is the way I think um, the, the Washington is going to try to do disengagement for the most part is not actually to disengage, but to change the nature of the mission to go with contractors instead of um, active duty, you know, uh, military to go with, um, again, su- kind of support missions instead of combat missions where, you know, the, the, the basic thrust is still unchanged. Um, but there is a, uh, you hope that people look at the headline and don't read it to the piece, basically. Um, this is, this is helpful in this particular case. The, the hope is it will help Kazemi, you know, Rock is, is going to have a parliamentary election later this year, and he's looking to uh, remain prime minister. Obviously, he's got to find an appeal. And the U.S. combat mission in Iraq is deeply unpopular. Uh, so, How you know, he dare can you. claim now. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, but he can claim now to have gotten U.S. combat troops out of Iraq without necessarily having gotten any U.S. troops out of Iraq. We don't know the, the fi- what the final numbers are going to look like. Um, but, you know, without really substantively have diminishing, uh, have diminished the, the, the U.S. deployment in Iraq such that, uh, you know, the, those American soldiers will still be there for, um, you know, to, to the extent that they're needed to help out against the Islamic State, to the extent that Qadami wants them there as a counterweight to Iranian-backed militias uh, or whatever. So he can, he's trying to, I mean, they're trying to sort of have their cake and eat it too, right. uh, in a sense. Um, and this is, you know, this is, again, it's it's a, of a piece with the increased use of contractors. It's of a piece with uh, the increasing use of, of sort of... Um, counter-terror missions. Uh, the Pentagon has a, a designation called 127E, 
which are support missions technically, but they put U.S. Special Operations Forces uh, in different parts of the world with with relatively little oversight. And I think, you know, these are the ways that that the the war on terror uh, to the extent that it's going to continue, it will continue like this. I think that's right. And I think it's interesting because it fits into this whole general strategy of Biden maintaining hegemony, that there's this talk, you know, Trump, Trump changed things. The, the United States is not going to be able to act exactly like it did in, in the Middle East any longer. I think that the election of Trump proved that, that that sort of taboo about criticizing U.S. action in the world is done. But what you're going to see is what you're seeing exactly here, which is using these reclassifications to essentially launder hegemony in a way that is going to be increasingly disconnected from the American public. And the fact that, you know, newspapers at home are all losing money, there's fewer and fewer reporters, there's fewer and fewer investigative reporters, I think uh, essentially allows the United States to um, try to do all of this under the radar. And I think that's what's really going to be going um, occurring, particularly in, you know, the frontiers of empire in places like the Middle East. Um, and so, Derek, I did have a question. What are the uh, U.S., you know, allies in the region? How are Israel and Saudi Arabia responding to this? Have they made any any um, any gestures, any comments, or are they basically been mum? Because the idea is, I think, ultimately balancing against Iran. Iran, um, and ensuring that Iran doesn't take over, you know, in the in the great game between Saudi right, Arabia right. and Iran, Iran uh, that Iran yeah. doesn't uh, uh, win. Yeah, I haven't seen any comments from them on this uh, withdrawal. I think, uh, you know, the Israelis seem pretty comfortable that they can strike with some impunity right. at uh, Iranian proxies all over the, the region. Um, the Saudis um, view, I mean, uh, the Saudis have, have been talking with the Iranians uh, kind of, you know, under the or behind the scenes a little bit, although they've, they've started to uh, both sort of uh, acknowledge that these things are happening. Um, and, and, you know, those talks have been brokered to some extent by Kadami's government. Um I think Kadami in Iraq, would, right? Mustafa Kadami, the Al Kadami, the, the Prime Minister of Iraq, right? So uh, Iraq is acting as a go between the two between yeah, the two potential regional hegemons. It is a sort of natural go between. I mean, the the Iraqi government has to balance itself between the United States and Iran, and to the extent that Saudi Arabia is the kind of a States. proxy for the United States, our in the fifty first state. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, you know, they are a sort of natural um, one of a couple of countries that could serve as as kind of mediators, and and it's in their interest as much as anybody else's to uh, try and bring. The Saudis and the Iranians together and and reduce tensions in that region. Um, that's kind so of an I, interesting. You know, think, that's kind of an interesting shift. And in, if you take sort of the broader history of Iraq, when you think about the Iraq Iran War in the eighties and Saddam's attempt to basically become a regional hegemon, post United States being reduced to this kind of go between is an interesting shift in the longer history of of Iraq of post colonial Iraq that I just wanted to to mention. That that'll be interesting. Well, sure. I mean, you know. The, the the overthrow of Saddam and the institution of a, I guess, nominally at least democratic government in a country with a Shia majority that has, uh, you know, obviously close geographic and historical ties with Iran has, has you know, put Iraq in a different footing. And, and, you know, but to the extent that 
Different footing because Saddam, Saddam was Sunni. Uh, just, well, Saddam was Sunni and he was, yeah. you know, Ba'athist, secular. hostile to yeah. Iran for right. a number of reasons. But, uh, you know, the 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 even Iraqi Shia have been protesting over the last couple of years over Iran's kind of uh, dominant position influencing Iraqi politics. So there is a countervailing pressure on any Iraqi leader, not just from the United States, but internally uh, to sort of maintain some distance from Iran and some semblance of, of sovereignty, you know, uh, and to the extent that you can balance Iran against anybody, the Saudis, the U.S., whatever, uh, that's that's uh, the, the kind of political games that Iraqi leaders have to play. Very, uh, very interesting. And I'm sure we'll be returning to this one over the years. So uh, why don't we wrap up with some discussion about what's going in, in uh, what's going on in Tunisia, the only successful uh, democracy post-Arab Spring, right, is I believe how <laughs> the blob loves to refer to it. So uh, maybe you could just remind people uh, to what happened in Tunisia with Ben Ali and it, how that got the whole thing going and how we got to, to where we are today. Just a quick well, overview. Tunisia was the f- the the wellspring of of the Arab Spring in a sense that's where the first protest broke out uh, after a cart long time um, a, a cart right, owner a, yeah, a, a cart owner um, you know c- committed suicide self immolated I think uh, yeah. in response to just be a frustration over being shaken down by the police basically uh, and the corruption that that he was trying to you know manage uh, but the protest broke out there against uh, Zainal Abidin bin Ali who was the longtime uh, dictator really uh, called himself president he was really dictator of, of Tunisia um, and it, it is as you say considered to be the one success story if you look at all the countries, uh, that saw some uh, that saw major, let's say, Arab Spring uprisings. So Egypt, uh, Libya, one, yeah, Tunisia, I mean, compared to Syria. Libya, Egypt, Syria, Yemen. I mean, compared to these places, uh, Tunisia wound up with a, a democratic elected government, and so it's been held up by um, uh, mostly European leaders, but but just to a certain extent, the United States as well as this sort of great success story of the Arab Spring, proof that democratic, you know, democracy can can thrive. Democracy is on the march, place. baby. <laughs> democracy on the march. Yeah, exactly. Um, so what's happened over the past few days, over the weekend, uh, the president of Tunisia, uh, Kais Sayed, uh, suspended parliament. He fired his prime minister after months of just like complete dysfunction. You know, in in uh, he and his prime minister Hisham uh, Mashishi didn't get along with one another. They weren't working uh, well together. Tunisia's economy is shattered. I mean, it's completely uh, devastated. A, a lot of it due to the pandemic. Um, so there's a lot of dysfunction. There've been a lot of protests, uh, both kind of directly related to COVID, but more related to the economic uh, crisis that that COVID has exacerbated. Uh, So he declared under the uh, emergency powers section of Tunisia's 2014 constitution that he had the right to fire the prime minister and to suspend parliament. Uh, There is some question as to whether or not uh, some protests, like, uh, you know, months of protests constitute enough of an emergency to, to really legally, uh, trigger that clause. This should be, 
this is a case that should be handled by Tunisia's constitutional court, but Tunisia doesn't have a constitutional court because Syed and our you know, successive right. uh, leaders have not been able to agree on a slate of judges to fill that court. Right. They haven't constituted uh, so, the constitutional court. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, you know, this has been a few days now. Um, Syed is continuing to fire people. He's uh, fired, I think, the head of the state television network. He fired, he had his um, security forces raid Al Jazeera's offices. These are not promising signs right. from uh, the perspective of maintaining free, a free press or freedom of speech. Um, but it's not clear that he's done anything beyond the bounds of what he's allowed to do under the Constitution yet. Uh, you know, you know, again, because there's no court to sort of adjudicate this stuff. Um, there's there've been some calls from Europe for Syed to kind of you know put an end date on this. Nobody's uh, telling him to to uh, you know nobody's to denounced end it him for yet. Real, yeah, um, his political some of his political opponents have have characterized this as a coup, uh, or they did at least in the initial kind of day or so after he suspended Parliament. They've even walked back, you know, some of that that rhetoric and are talking about, you know, dialogue and, you know, can we have a discussion here? And uh, Syed hasn't seemed too interested in talking to anybody at this point. I think what he's he's angling for is probably uh, a constitutional change that would shift more power to the presidency, yep, to the executive. Um, yeah, he's he's not going to I mean, he's, he's going to get pushback from. Uh, the parliament, but the, the Tunisian parliament is is quite fragmented. Uh, part of the reason that that it's been the, the policies have been so dysfunctional is because, uh, you know, it's basically filled with uh, a lot of parties who max out at about 15 percent of the vote. Uh, so they form these kind of unstable coalitions, national yeah. unity. Yeah, like yeah. national unity governments. Uh, so it's it's not a great situation. It's sort of a challenge for the West in terms of. You know, how long do you let this go on before you start denouncing uh, this as a, a anti-democratic action? Or do you kind of maintain uh, the the cheerleading for the great success story of the Arab Spring? So what are the Europeans interests in, in Tunisia? Why why do they care about what's going on there? Apart from the, apart know, from again, colonialism, apart from the, the colonialism or the sort of like yeah, the awful uh, colonialism. Again, cheerleading democracy on the march, Tunisia sits uh, in a in a pretty central location for a number of things. I mean, it's on the uh, the border uh, with Algeria, which isn't quite the jihadist hotbed that it it once was, uh, but still that kind of Western Tunisia, Eastern Algerian area uh, is very geographically kind of onerous and mountainous, and it's a good place for. Um, extremists to who hide. get yeah. away from it all to hide out. Yeah. Uh, obviously, Tunisia's other border is uh, uh, is with Libya. Uh, Libya is its own problems. It's right. just sort of emerging from a civil war. Uh, southwestern Libya, in particular, wait, wait, did it the United States lawless. liberate Libya? Uh, sure, we liberated it from uh, law and order, sent it into yeah. Uh, listen, total Libya chaos. is in a is in a, a total uh, total. Um, what would be the word? Not, not decay isn't the right word. It's in it, to, total disarray. Libya is in total disarray, disarray yeah. right I mean, now. There's, there's, famously, there open air a, slave markets. Um, very famously, right. but also just uh, you know difficulty with uh, my understanding. There, correct me if I'm wrong, but like with food and energy and typical oh, you yeah. know living I mean, just living life is very very difficult you know, in Libya I mean, right it's now. A, the country's a war zone. The northern part of the country, especially the populated part, is a war zone. The southern part 
was never has never really been under strong government control, but certainly, uh, you know, as things have fallen apart, has has become even more kind of lawless. Um, I mean, there is a national unity government in Libya now that's supposed to be working toward an election in December, so they're trying to pull themselves out, but you know, of that kind of tailspin. But you know, obviously, Tunisia is in a uh, is in a place where it is impacted by and can impact upon uh, a lot of different things another you know another issue being the the sort of flow of migrants across the mediterranean something european uh, governments are very keen to stop right. uh, tunisia is well positioned to uh, you know for for that well it's not like europe had any effect on uh, north africa and it's not like they have any responsibility for what's going on there yeah, so i understand I mean, you know, that you, you have to you have to draw the line somewhere yeah you I have mean, to draw you know. yeah no that's a that's a really good point so um this story is developing and i'm sure we'll we'll return to it in the coming weeks and months um but i think that that's all we've got for today uh so thank you again and I hope you enjoy our interview uh, with Matt Duss, uh, Bernie Sanders' chief foreign policy advisor. And Derek, I'll see you next week. Sounds good. Hello, Prestige Heads. It is my uh, sincere pleasure to have as our guest today my friend and colleague and someone who I genuinely admire in the foreign policy world, uh, Matt Duss, who is presently foreign policy advisor to Bernie Sanders. So, Matt, thank you so much for being here. Derek and I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Great to be here. So why don't we just get going uh, at the beginning, get started at the beginning. A, a lot of people who listen to this podcast are obviously interested in foreign affairs or what the hell else are they doing? Um, so how did you get involved in the foreign policy world? What's the career path from someone who was a real critic of, of U.S. foreign policy, you know, to, to getting in, into the, the heart of the machine, you know, entering the machine in a real way as Bernie's uh, foreign policy advisor? It, it's it's a kind of circuitous path, um, but I can give the uh, the basic outlines. You know, as as you you know, Danny, I, I went to graduate school at the University of Washington Jackson School, where um, you're also a professor um, studying uh, uh, the Middle East, with the intention of going into journalism. But I wanted to get a background in in Middle East politics and history in order to do kind of policy focused journalism. Um, after completing that in 2007, I came to DC and ended up writing for the American Prospect, which is a, a, a left-leaning magazine that I, I like a lot. At that point, it had one of the best group blogs of any of the magazines going. If for people who remember uh, the era, right, of the blogging the, world, the All blogging of our Zoomer world, Zoomer listeners are right, right, exactly. that is. <laughs> when, when, when things were really rough and tumble, you know, you know, the, the kind of, you know when, when it was real, not like we have now with these subs. Yeah, the real you know, beefs. Like, yeah, so. <laughs> Um, but so I ended up writing for the prospect and that's, you know, kind of how I got into the kind of foreign policy conversation, writing pieces and writing for the blog. And from there I was hired by the center for American progress, um, to, to, as the national security editor for think progress, the, the no, unfortunately no longer existing blog of the center for American progress, which was so really Matt, the center, the center actually looked to the blogosphere to recruit people. 
Oh, that, yeah. That's kind of unique. It's like hiring someone from Twitter would be the equivalent today. Something no, no, I mean, you know, to just to, 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 to belabor the Seattle, com- Seattle comparison far too long, it's like that era post-Nirvana when all the major labels were like buying up every band they possibly could. I mean, <laughs> you were getting the Meat Puppets got a record deal, okay? The Flaming Lips right. got a record deal. So I was kind of like the Meat Puppets. <laughs> that's how I look at myself. They were like, all right, let's just sign this guy and see what he can do. Small but um, devoted fan base. Right, exactly. Um <laughs> So, you know, I got signed to this major label, but it was a great place to work. I, you know, was hired the editor in chief of, of Think Progress, my, still my good friend, Faz Shakir, who went on to be uh, Bernie's uh, 2020 campaign manager, a really, really fantastic uh, political mind. Um, but, you know, that was a really interesting vantage point to kind of learn how, you know, DC works and learn how the foreign policy discourse is shaped and expanded and not expanded and in fact constrained in a lot of ways and how those constraints are enforced. Um, so I spent the next six and a half years there and then in summer 2014 um, became the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, which is a small organization um, that kind of produces materials also is a grant making organization. So I got to work with a number of, of groups and individuals in Israel and Palestine and in, and in the U.S. who work on Middle East peace issues. Um, and then in early 2017 um, is when I joined Bernie staff. I didn't wasn't formally affiliated with this 2016 campaign, but I was kind of talking to them and sharing some thoughts and materials through the primary um, and ended up you know, testifying in front of the platform committee on their behalf in summer of 2016. But then um, when Bernie decided he wanted to bring on a, a full-time foreign policy advisor uh, twenty in late 2016, we started those conversations, and I joined him in February 2017. It's it's nice. Uh, uh, this is our fourth episode, and, and I have uh, hitherto been by far the oldest person on this podcast. So, <laughs> Matt, I think you and I are cl- relatively close to the same age. So it's nice to, <laughs> to have somebody who is not, uh, you know, not, not, not be the old guy um, here. Uh, I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> you should. You should. I, I take it as a compliment. We um, represent Gen X on this podcast. American <laughs> Prestige supports Gen X. That's right. Um, you you came through. I mean, you know, that background is a is a not a common one certainly for for somebody who uh winds up as the the ch- chief foreign policy advisor to a to a US senator um mm. and i wonder um if you could talk a little bit about kind of what effect that has on on kind of you know bringing a, a different approach or a different set of ideas to foreign policy because i think there's a lot of the, the sort of usual pipeline from, you know, an international relations school to an internship to a think tank to a congressional staff, wherever that leads, um, it is sort of designed to winnow out a lot of um, not not necessarily uh, intentionally, but it, it winnows out a lot of people who who maybe approach these issues in a different way. So I wonder if you could talk about your background versus what is sort of quote unquote, the typical background for somebody in in your position. I mean, yeah, that's a good question. And I I would say, I mean, the way I put it, it's like the system sort of like incentivizes kind of certain ideas and beliefs and discourages strongly other kinds of beliefs and critiques. Um, And people just sort of get acculturated. I mean, it's how any kind of industry works. Um, 
you know, you're, you're kind of, I mean, academia has its own constraints in this way. I mean, if, if you How want, dare you? <laughs> you, know, well, you know, I've heard this is true. Um, you know, there are certain things that could potentially create turbulence and things that won't. And it makes a great deal of sense that people are going to do those things which won't. Um, and I think, you know, being, you know, setting out a career for yourself uh, in Washington, in politics, if you want to work in government, um, there are some choices that are going to be smarter, quote unquote, um, and some that will be less smart. I mean, for myself, you know, I kind of that became clear to me fairly early on. And, you know, and I'll just say I kind of made the decision, OK, I am not going to seek a role in government. It's just not, you know, I think I feel like I just want to say and write things um, not to kind of promote myself as some kind of, you know, uh, you know, deep, courageous thinker. But that's just a decision that I made. Like, I feel like it's important for, for, for folks to be out there kind of challenging some of the conventional wisdom and, and kind of pushing, you know, pushing the debate in some new directions. Um, and I just decided I wanted to be one of those people. Um, and the way it worked out that, you know, that turns out that there is this this unconventional senator from the state of Vermont who was looking for precisely this sort of person to come on and help him develop his foreign policy. So it just kind of worked out that I turned out that I did go into government. And that's where I've been for the past four and a half years. So, Matt, if you wouldn't mind talking a bit about what it was at CAP and obviously whatever details you're comfortable revealing, but what were the limits of debate, particularly in your specialty of the Middle East? What were mm -hmm. sort of the contours that you found maybe a bit stifling yeah. um, and that what you wanted to expand on? Yeah, I would say, I mean, there is there was a lot of and I think you, Danny, you and I covered this a little bit when we did our, our interview for, for Jacobin uh, a few months ago. I mean, the way that the, the, the term the consensus is is used, it's like, oh, this is within the consensus or that's outside the consensus. And the things you are saying are really not within the consensus. And, you know, to me, that was neither here nor there. It's like, you know, like, that's great. Thank you for informing me what the quote unquote consensus is. But, you know, I mean, I think isn't part of our job supposed to be interrogating that consensus and seeing whether these ideas actually make sense and what the impact has been of, of the of this so-called consensus both on our own country and in the regions of the world where this consensus is being you know implemented um and it turns out people are less enthusiastic about doing that than you might you, you might have thought um but i you know there's a there's a few moments that i could turn to i mean one is i think we got we put out a a, a report in in 2011 looking at islamophobia uh, the Islamophobia industry. I think this was a really, it was a really major report. There was about five or six of us authors on it, researchers. Uh, Faz was a, was one of the contributors, my, my good friend Wajahat Ali, who uh, some listeners may know, a writer for The Atlantic and MSNBC, uh, or is it CNN? Apologies if I'm getting that wrong. But anyway, um, he was the lead author on that. And basically we charted out this whole set of think tanks and and funders and, and so-called scholars uh, who were promoting these just ridiculous anti-Muslim conspiracy theories, like the idea that Sharia law was being kind of implemented in secret in all these states across the um, across the uh, across the country, um, not not dissimilar to the way we see this hysteria around critical race theory uh, being used now. In fact, he you know he and I have kind of commented that on this, like all this stuff you know, seeing critical race theory under the bed or behind the TV everywhere, you know, it's constantly, it's kind of this new kind of way to gin up fear um, about the nefarious goals of, of whatever the globalist conspiracy. Um, but we put out that report and for in, in Washington terms, it was a pretty hard hitting report in that it like called out other think tanks 
right? And right. that is something that's just not done. Because like right. you're never allowed to really like do anything but presume everyone is working on the best of intentions, right? It's 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 never right to call out anyone's bad faith, even if that bad faith is just absolutely staring you in the face. Um so I think that was what sort of like caught a lot of people on the other side's attention. And, you know, that along with some of the critical things we were writing about Middle East policy, pushing back on the kind of the, you know, the push for conflict with Iran, which was ongoing then and continues to go now. Uh, criticisms of the Israeli occupation, especially, um, which are, you know, certain which were, have long been kind of seen as, you know, uncomfortable. It's less so now. Um, although the debate has kind of changed and mutated in some strange ways, as we've seen over the past few days of this absolute bizarre temper tantrum over the Ben and Jerry's uh, announcement. Right. Um, you know, in some way, you're seeing much more critical voices rising on the progressive left, but you're also seeing, you know, the Republican Party essentially just absolutely commit to this, you know, a future of, of an undemocratic one state uh, in Israel, Palestine, in a way that it wasn't even then. You know, but these things, you know, once we started to get pressure in, you know, kind of behind the scenes, and then that turned into kind of a series of articles that were sort of promoted by uh, the right attacking us, attacking the institution. And, you know, at, some, at one point, it, finally, um, the leaders of CAP decided that this is just too much of a pain and we're just not, we don't want to have to deal with this anymore. So please stop writing these things. Wow. Um, well, I actually want to ask about, you know, as somebody who's made the shift from that world from sort of writing about and commenting on U.S. foreign policy to being, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to say inside the, the tent because, you know, Bernie is st still pretty outside the tent, mm. but he's still in government. Mm -hmm. um, what Was there anything that was particularly eye-opening to you? And again, you know, comment on this only to the extent that you you feel comfortable but was there anything that was particularly eye-opening about making that transition and and um you know that you that you saw that you observed once you got kind of behind the curtain in a sense behind the curtain where uh, in, in government in government yeah i mean I wouldn't say it was really shocking i mean one i will say on the positive i had a good sense of you know, how, st how staff work is done, having been a sort of on the other side of the table, as I would say, like being an advocate, being up on the hill as kind of an issue area expert, you know, um, supporting certain policies, talking to members of Congress and their staff. Um, but I, you know, I would say I've actually been encouraged by the level of commitment and, and interest and passion that a lot of congressional staffers show. Um, in kind of pushing forward on some of these ideas. No, I think you, you know, you can different members are, it's easier to, to kind of, <laughs> to get them to sign on to some of these good things and it's harder for others. Um, but no, I, I, I think one thing I have taken over my past four and a half years on the Hill is just, you know, the, the level of commitment and, and, and time and energy that I think um, staff really does, you know, you, you've got some really committed people and I'm encouraged by that. I think there's, Folks outside of Washington, it is easy to kind of be cynical about Washington. It's often very, very justified. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's all, it's also really important to note that there are folks doing some really hard work in tough circumstances trying to move the needle. Um, is and the question is, how do we give them the support and make, make, make it be that there's more of them? Sure. Is that, I mean, is that something that you've seen uh, improvement on as you've been uh, w with Senator Sanders and sort of, uh, observing 
the level of interest. I think about this in terms of kind of the old saw that that nobody votes on foreign policy, which is, you know, I think a, a truism that that is intended to kind of depoliticize foreign policy and take it out of the realm of public debate, to take it out of the realm even of congressional debate. Um, but I feel like mm. that that is changing to some degree. And I wonder if, you, if that's something you've seen uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, my response to that truism truism is, OK, then why not do the right thing? You know, <laughs> if, <laughs> yeah. if, if, if no one's voting on this and why not tell the truth and support a good right. progressive foreign policy instead of being afraid to do those things. Um, so, I mean, leaving aside whether that's true or not, I think it's sometimes true. It's sometimes much less true. Um but I, I, I just take it to say, yeah, even if it is true, that, that just means there's a lot of space to, to do good things instead of continuing to do bad things. Um, so, no, but there was a there was an earlier question in there. Can you just, Derek? Um, it, it was about, you know, the, the level of engagement on foreign ah, policy and whether right. you've seen cha- a change in that, because it feels like we are to for the better, I think, starting yes. to bring these issues more into no, a political I, I think context. The, the answer is unequivocally yes. Um, I would say on the left, because frankly, because of you've got some some courageous voices, you know, including my boss, including others um, who are willing to really bring some new ideas, bring some real critiques of the way we've done foreign policy. You've got a number of new voices, especially in the House. I mean, let's just look at what we saw during the most recent Gaza war. I mean, we have never seen Congress the challenge in administration from the left, the way that we did during this Gaza war. I mean, we have never seen a special order series of speeches like we saw on the House floor um, from AOC, from Pocan, from Omar, from Tlaib, from Bush, from Presley, from this whole group. Um, you know, the squad plus, you know, saying, you know, talking about this in, in very clear language about Palestinian rights, about occupation, about settler colonialism, all these, you know, the, you know, a way of talking about this in, in, that I think is frankly more, more forthright and truthful and that we need more of. Um, and that's going to create, that continues to create momentum. Um, cause it signals to folks like it is, you can talk about this stuff clearly and truthfully. Um, there are more of us than we might've thought. Um, so I, I think that is really important to note now, Obviously, there's still a lot of challenges. There's a lot of work to be done. But I do think it's important to for people to see that this work that so many have been doing for a very, very long time is is showing fruit. So let's take a step back, because I think Bernie's going to be a lodestone in particular for future generations of both politicians and activists and even intellectuals looking at what is possible. So where would you place Bernie in the foreign policy firmament. My, my understanding is that he had these instincts going back to the 70s and the 80s and that these have been sharpened over time. And I imagine you yourself had a personal impact on that. So maybe you could kind of trace Bernie's foreign policy development from his thoughts in the uh, 70s and the 80s mm-hmm. to where you see he arrived at today. Right. Yeah, no, I think you can look at certain things, like during the 80s, especially his, you know, what he said and did, um, with regard to uh, Reagan's, you know, Latin America policy, very critical, and I think in, in many respects absolutely correct um, about um, some of the bad things we were doing and some of the justifications and lies that were used to justify um, the human rights abuses that we were that the United States was supporting in, in Central America. Um, 
and not only that, having, I think, being, you know, having <laughs> the courage to continue to defend that. I remember there was this really important, like, interview that he did with the New York Times back during the primary um, where he was challenged on this. And I remember just seeing that. And it's like, you know, you know, the, you know, you can anyone who's kind of paid attention to the way that, you know, people talk about po- foreign policy in a safe way, you know how people would have tried to respond and like kind of duck away. And he just went for it. He was like, no, I was right. Um, you know, <laughs> I was right. And he was, and he I was mean, right. Yeah. He was right. Yeah. Um, but the, the jaws that dropped on the, the New York Times editorial board, right. it, like that, right. that was the bien really pensant liberalism. Yeah. They don't like hearing about right, the empire. Because like yeah. the, the so-called consensus has determined that, you know, well, we won the cold war. So obviously supporting these death squads, um, um, and kind of downplaying this genocide and murdering and raping all these nuns was stuff that was just necessary to for the ultimate, you know, end of the Cold War, which it was not. Right. It the was glorious not. victory. Yeah, right. that's how it's presented. Um, it is something that the people in that region, in those countries, remember, if even if we don't. Um, and, and it's and it's important for us to, to really do what we can to remind people about the consequences of these policies. Um, that we're not spoke that we're not, you know, our government was not truthful at the time. Um, I mean, there are other things like during, you know, the um, um, the Kosovo, um, um, you know, intervention um, where he stuff he said on the on the floor, on the House floor about war powers. I mean, you can draw a straight line from things he was saying then about Congress's Article one power to the Yemen war powers resolution that, that he introduced um, in, in 2018 uh, and passed in 2019. Um, those are the same concerns. Those are the same concerns that that he talked about just this past week when he introduced this um, expansive National Security Powers Reform Act with Senator Lee and Senator Murphy, um, you know, which is a, a huge bill. It's got a number of really important provisions um, for Congress to kind of reassert and reclaim its its power over matters of war, arms sales, uh, presidential declarations of emergency, and stuff like that. So it's really interesting. I think that Bernie is doing such incredible work on on the national security state, like you said, and essentially trying to restrain at home this uh, amorphous and and not all powerful, but you know has a lot of different centers of authority. So it's very difficult to ascertain. What would you say uh, from your understanding? And you could speak for uh, Senator Sanders, or you could speak for yourself about the U.S. U.S.'s global positioning you know what's your take on the bases what's your take on on the budget what should the united states's global role be what's that macro geostrategic perspective yeah i mean and i'll just clarify here i am just speaking for myself even though obviously i can you know kind of describe how i you know see senator sanders thinking having developed and having worked with him on it but just clarify this these are speaking for myself here not the office i mean i think you know just by virtue of you know, America, you know, the United States has enormous economic, political, and military power. The question is, to what uses are we putting it? Ultimately, I mean, stepping back, like, what's American foreign policy for? Um, American foreign policy exists to promote the security and prosperity of the American people, first and foremost. But I think as progressives, as a progressive myself, um, I think that brings an understanding that we have an obligation beyond you know, just our own people. We have an obligation and uh, to, uh, to kind of act in solidarity as much as possible with people around the world because our existence, our future is bound up with people around the world. So at the very least, we have an obligation not to pursue policies that export insecurity, that export poverty, 
um, or that sustain poverty or that sustain insecurity. And I think a lot of cases that it has clearly done that. I mean, I don't think I have to explain that on this podcast. Um, <laughs> now, as to what that means for America's global role, I mean, I think prizing open the debate is just a first step. I think we're very much in a space right now. And this is where I think, you know, again, going back to what I said about being encouraged about this moment, you know, these voices that I was talking about in Congress now, these are built upon, you know, in, in a movement that has been raising these questions. It's grassroots activists, it's, it's community activists, it's journalists, it's analysts. And these folks are networked and connected with people around the world, across the country. Um, and, you know, I don't want, I'm not someone who kind of overplays the impact of technology, but it is important to be able to talk to people in, you know, activists in Egypt, activists in Hong Kong, activists wherever in real time and understanding how they're perceiving what's going on, what they're trying to achieve for themselves and their communities and how the, the United States policy does or does not impact. And I think as progressives, we have a responsibility to kind of, to kind of listen to that. Now, I know that's not kind of answering the broader macro question. I mean, I would say in general, and I think it's clear this is Senator Sanders' position, we can and should be spending a lot less on defense. Um, the, the amount that we spend now compared to what we've been spending you know, 15, 20 years ago is absolutely absurd. Um, and there's a lot of places that we can, we can cut that down. Um, you know, we talk about waste, fraud, and abuse. We talk about the contractors and CEOs for these massive defense companies. But at the end of the day, I think, you know, seriously reducing the defense budget requires thinking about strategic choices. And that's where, you know, I think watching that's where we're going to meet the real resistance. Is to say right, because no one wants to make a choice. They want to do it all. Right. Which exactly. is which has kind of been uh, uh, right. in the tenor of U.S. foreign policy for 75 right. years. And I don't. And again, I also, you know, want to say there are places where I think a U.S. military presence does kind of encourage less risky behavior rather than more risky behavior. Um, but I think being in that space where we can kind of talk through these things, what are we doing, what are we achieving, and why is, is where we need to be. And I see us for the first time in a very, very long time um, getting into that space. If we get into the, uh, we we can get into the Middle East. You mentioned the the Yemen war powers vote, which was a really uh, I I felt like a watershed moment in, in sort of trying to gain back uh, the authority that Congress has steadily conceded to the presidency over decades mm -hmm. in in terms of foreign policy and military policy, um, and has become this this bigger project that you you talked about you know in terms of really kind of in general trying to to gain some of the bring some of those powers back to congress uh but we look if you if we look at yemen and i think uh this is an illustrative case uh in terms of what the biden administration has done to date i wonder what your view is on this because it seems to me what we've done is basically an accounting trick. Biden announced very early on we were the U.S. was going to end support for Saudi military operations, offensive Saudi military operations, without defining what offensive mm. means. Um, it seems like a lot of that work has just been shifted to, to a contract basis instead of uh, direct U.S. support. And the effect is relatively negligible. Uh, but as somebody who has focused on Yemen a, a great deal over the last couple of years. Do you see any progress there uh, or anything that encourages you? I do see some progress and I would just disagree that it's just an accounting trick. I do think their announcement and the policy shift is real. 
Um, I think they've been less <laughs> energetic in in, dis- in, in describing <laughs> okay. this publicly, the, the distinction they are making between offensive and defensive support than I really wish they, they, they would be and could be, in my view. Um, now, I'll, I'll do something that I really hate in Washington, which is to say in a classified <laughs> setting, we have gotten <laughs> uh, more explanation <laughs> on this, um, but that's kind of all I'll say. Well, that but, says something about U.S. power, right? That so much of it is classified. And right. that's, I think, a larger issue that we'll be talking about throughout this podcast is that I think that's by design. Right. You know, like the, there doesn't want – this is the moment. We're, we're living through the moment of prizing open the discussion, and that's going to involve, I think, the public uh, and Congress doing things to make those sorts of things things public because otherwise what we can't even have a debate if we don't know what's going on no i think that's exactly right um now as regards specifically yemen so i do think there has been a significant reduction in u.s support for the saudi war effort there um could we do more do more probably um but i also think that what they have done is really invest a lot more diplomatically they named a special envoy very early on at the same time they announced this new policy um They've been working to ease, if not fully end the blockade. Again, I agree with those who say they could be doing more to kind of let let these fuel ships in because fuel is what is one of the main things that they lack. There has been some humanitarian aid getting in. Listen, I'm not here to defend the Saudi war effort at all, and I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah, very but much I will not. Just, yeah. But I will just say, like, I think, you know, respectfully, I think there's a sense on some that it's entirely the choices of the United States and the Saudis that are driving this. And that is just not true. Um, you know, I think obviously, obviously the Houthis are a player here. The Iranians are a player here, although much to a much smaller extent than the kind of anti-Iran hysteria industry would like you to believe. Um, but they are um, a player. But I do think, I mean, I, 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 I think we should recognize that the Biden administration did make a significant shift in this policy. It, it is not simply just the Trump policy with the, with the new coat of paint. It is, it's something different. Now, is it working? No, uh, it's, 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 it's really... It's a tough issue, but I do think we've stayed in close touch with them. You know, Senator Sanders has spoken with Special Envoy Linder King, as as have we at the staff level. Um, but I think it's worth recognizing they made this shift because of pressure from progressives, because a movement and a number of members of Congress, including my boss and others, raised this issue relentlessly and are continuing to push and try to get more and better engagement on this. One of the one of the criticisms that that Lender King has faced, and I think the the diplomatic effort has has gotten, and I, I uh, would very much be interested in in your take on this, uh, is that there has been more investment in diplomacy, been more investment in trying to bring the Houthis to the negotiating table, but it's still rooted in fundamentally a a, a sense about this conflict that may have been true six years ago, but isn't true now. There's there's little willingness to recognize uh, that the Houthis have made substantial gains mm-hmm. in northern Yemen and kind of bring them to the table on mm-hmm. the basis of where things stand now versus where we would like them to be or where we you know thought they would wind up five years ago or six mm-hmm. years ago. Is that is that I mean, do you do you see that as a as a problem or something that uh, the administration may want to kind of rethink? I understand the criticism. I understand that 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 view. I'm not sure it's that's what's determining the kind of why we're stuck. I mean, but as you say, it's right. I mean, the Houthis are in a very different place right now, in large part because of this, this war persisting with U.S. support. Um, 
but you know, I, I'll, I'll just say it. I'm not, I'm not saying that you are making this, you are suggesting this Derek, but like one of the things that I deal with that I've noticed in Washington a lot is, and this is untrue on the part of like Hawks. Like they always talk about military forces being decisive. Let's use decisive force. When we, when we assassinate Qasem Soleimani, <laughs> praising Trump for his decisive action. Well, what, what did this, what did it decide? I mean, it, it decided that Qasem Soleimani was no longer alive, but it let, you know, it didn't end something as much as it just began something else. I mean, we've seen the after effects, the consequences of that assassination since then. And there's a sense that military action is decisive in a way that diplomacy is not. But that is a false distinction. I mean, both of these things often lead to kind of less than satisfactory and kind of grinding ongoing, you know, whether military conflicts or diplomatic efforts. And I think we're seeing the latter in Yemen. Um, and I think kind of I would just respectfully suggest that I think folks who imagine that just ending military support or seriously diminishing U.S. military support would bring us very quickly to a much better outcome are in, in some ways kind of imagining U.S. military power to be decisive in a similar way, if that makes any sense. Yeah, that uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, the, the, the idea of military power being decisive versus, you know, what, the criticism I've seen of Linda King, which are, you know, we need to or he he needs to kind of acknowledge the the gains that the Houthis have made instead mm -hmm. of, you know, yeah. sort of trying to roll them back in a sense. And I yeah. don't mean militarily, but right. I mean, sort of, you know, pretending that they haven't happened or that this is still a uh, the, the conflict is still right. the way it looked in 2016. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I, I, that 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 makes some sense. I won't I won't agree with it or disagree with it right here and now, but I, I, I get it. Totally. So why don't we move on to Matt? Something that you've been working on for, for most of your adult life is, of course, Israel-Palestine. So why don't you, I'd love to hear what you think the state of play is there now, particularly in light of the recent Gaza war, mm -hmm. and, and how you see either things changing both on the ground as literally an analyst of, of Middle Eastern mm -hmm. politics, and also where you see the Biden administration uh, doing in response to, you know, a, a general shift in public opinion. I would say a generational shift yeah. in public opinion. Yeah. I mean, I could just talk about the, I mean, I think Senator Sanders views were made clear in the piece he published in the New York times, um, during the Gaza war, which was that the U S um, should, should have called for a ceasefire earlier. Um, but more generally should be doing more to play an even handed role with between Israelis and Palestinians, recognizing that both peoples have rights. Both peoples have, um, are, are entitled to, to live with security and dignity. Um, but our policy has not really reflected that. Um, and I think that's part of the shift that you are seeing um, in the Democratic Party. And I think that is that's inarguable. I mean, like I was saying, like this, that series of speeches on the House floor, statements that you saw even from other uh, members of the Senate that were talking about Palestinian rights. Um, and that's the sort of language, again, that, that activist groups, Palestinian Americans, Arab Americans, progressives, Jewish American groups, like If Not Now and others have really been raising these issues and pressing, pressing uh, leaders on. Um, and now we see we see that really showing some some, you know, really moving the needle um, where it is now. I'll just say it's clear that the, the Biden administration didn't want to prioritize this um, mm -hmm. from the beginning. Um, I understand that. 
Um, but I think what we saw during the Gaza war was that this issue does have a way of prioritizing itself in often uh, inconvenient times and ways. Uh, I do think they have shown since then that they realize they, that they need to be much more engaged on this. Um, are they going as far as some of us might want? Uh, I don't think so. Um, but I think they do, you know, I'll just say that I think Hadi Amr, who's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, I know personally have a great deal of admiration for him. I think if you check out his work, in particular, a report that he co-authored for the Center for New American Security um, uh, back last year, maybe on Gaza reconstruction, it, you know, in Washington terms, um, and that's a qualification that's important, but in, in a Washington context, <laughs> that it does include uh, some really good thinking about how to address this challenge, including raising the issue that, you know, ultimately, if we want to solve the Gaza problem, if we want to solve the Israel-Palestine conflict, we need to find a way to kind of bring Hamas into the process. That means straightforward. That is what we need to do. And that's, I think, really one of, you know, a political fight that's going to come up at some point if people are serious about about dealing with this. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, post-Gaza, you saw the commitment of aid money, um, you know, a number of other things in process, but they are still very much trying to do a lot of this kind of behind the scenes and quietly. Again, I understand the logic of that. Um, I think, you know, you've got this new Israeli government, which, you know, contains mm -hmm. some characters very much to the right, including the prime minister and Natali Bennett, but also an Arab Israeli party uh, for the first time, an Arab Islamist party. Um uh, for the first time and, you know, other, you know, Labor Party and Merit. So it's it's a broad coalition. I do recognize, you know, again, I think people have some real questions, especially progressives, about what this new Israeli coalition is going to be able or willing to do, um, especially given that it's led by a, a, you know, a dedicated one-stater like Naftali Bennett, who's been explicitly in favor of just annexing uh, the West Bank in the past. But I think it is worth recognizing that moving past Netanyahu is good because I think what we saw with Netanyahu, as we saw with Trump, as, we, as we've seen with a number of other kind of authoritarian populist, you know, ethno-nationalist leaders around the world was intent on and, and actively trying to arrange the government around himself and his person. And I think moving away from that is, is just good and it's worth recognizing that. Why don't we move on to Iran because okay. we don't have that much time? Uh, and okay. since you're you're uh, you're the Iran man, why don't you ask Matt a good question about Iran that will really impress all of our the listeners? Because we've only got like well, three minutes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't you you can't really uh, deal with Iran in isolation. And it's sort of the, you know the con that that rivalry has spilled clearly into Iraq and Syria, and, and is inextricably related to that. So I guess my question would be. Um, your opinion on the apparent announcement that I don't has either been made or is forthcoming uh, about the withdrawal, maybe of combat U.S. combat troops from Iraq, um, possibly not so much a withdrawal as a redesignation yeah. uh, of combat troops as trainers and support staff. Right. But um, you know, what do you what do you make of that? And uh, you know, should people be Excited about that? Skeptical? <laughs> so what's your take? No, I mean, we've seen these kind of word games before. Um, I, and I think the way to look at it is, you know, the U.S. presence is unpopular politically in Iraq. Um, but Iraq's leaders value it. Um, so I think this shifting, you know, saying, okay, combat troops out. Now they're going to be here as advisors. 
is a way of managing that political tension domestically within Iraq. It's kind of as simple as that. Um, the, I mean, the other issue, of course, is the the future of the nuclear deal. Mm-hmm. Um, the the talks that have been, you know, talks have been put on hold now because of Iran's presidential transition. Um, it it seems like any opportunity for renewing the nuclear deal and then using that as a springboard to further diplomacy is is probably closed off. Um, do you? Um, you know, I, I sort of questioned the decision for the first couple of months of the Biden administration to not move on that and, and to sort of wait for the Iranians to come to us in a sense. Um, I, I wonder, you know, how you, you overall, what's your feeling on on how the, the administration has handled Iran? I uh, question that decision as well. Um, <laughs> but we are where we are now. Um, <laughs> you know, but I think it's, you know. Obviously, with this new government in place, this this new leader is is much more of a you know a conservative or a hardliner, whatever term you would like to use. Um, I think I've seen the argument out there, which I think has some you know makes some sense that as as a much more hawkish character who's much closer to the supreme leader, he could potentially deliver on a deal in a way that um, others might not. Um, but I also think just. I think it's not hard to understand why the Iranians might be skeptical of rejoining this deal on the basis of promises from the (laughs) the United States. Um, Don't they understand that we're, we always operate in good faith. No, exactly. Yeah, we're good. We've got good intentions. Let's understand like this was like the point of withdrawing from the deal and reimposing these sanctions was, you know, not to get to, you know, any kind of resolution because the demands that, that Pompeo laid out were just transparently, you know, no government was going to agree to those. Um, the whole point of this was to undermine future diplomacy. And unfortunately, I think we see that at working uh, right now. So this gets to the, the broader problem that I think the Biden administration has. And I think they understand this challenge. And in fact, I know they do is, you know, how do you develop a, a kind of foreign, a, you know, how to begin to develop and forge a new and durable foreign policy consensus that can that others around the world, friends and foes, um, We'll, we'll understand that like the commitments of one president will outlast that one president. That's, that's very difficult difficult right. in a moment of ideological transition. Right. I think, and that's, it's, it's not the Cold War, it's not the bipartisan consensus anymore. Right. But Matt, I know you've got to go. Um, so uh, I just wanted to thank you uh, from, from the American Prestige Podcast. Really appreciate your taking the time uh, to do this. And, uh, you know, we know you're doing great yeah. work and all that stuff. And, and we'll talk soon. Thanks, Matt. Yeah.